All right, the original plan tonight was to go back to our study on the tabernacle. But we're to the section on the tabernacle where we're going we're gonna to start dealing with the design of it. So we're going to be dealing with measurements, materials, and on my drive here, I'm like, the time change, it feels like it's three in the morning, it's Wednesday night, there's going to will be obviously just few people here, and I don't know if y'all want to be sitting there for an hour trying to go, well, okay, this is 15 feet high, and this is, and I just felt like that's the wrong approach. So what we're going to do is on Sunday, we spent some time in Luke 14 based off the lectionary. Well, the lectionary today concludes Luke chapter 14. I did a podcast today a little bit on this, so kind of the assignment that I gave everyone on the podcast we're going to do together here, and hopefully we can come to some answers. So if you have a Bible, Luke chapter 14, I'll go through everything in the chapter up to the section for today according to the uh, lectionary, and uh, we'll see what we can do, all right? Luke chapter 14, this chapter, uh, at least Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 24 we can refer to this as basically Jesus coming to dinner, right? Because Jesus is invited to come to a dinner of a chief Pharisee. We see that in Luke chapter 14, verse 1. Later later in the chapter, Jesus talks about the one who bade him or the one who invited him. So Jesus had been invited to come to a, a meal to eat bread at the, at the house of one of the chief Pharisees, all right? So he's there. So everything in this conversation in verses 1 to 24 happens during this meal, during this time, okay? And there are a lot of hermeneutical challenges here because the first section is the one that seems the most out of place. Verses 1 through 6, as we talked about on Sunday, it's about basically healing and the Sabbath day, okay? Healing and the Sabbath day. So on one hand, do you want to use uh, Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 6 to talk about the Sabbath day? Well, I don't know if that's really the emphasis. I think the emphasis is pointed directly at the Pharisees themselves, trying to demonstrate their lack of empathy, a lack of compassion, how they've placed their own legalism and their own religious rules in front of people and in front of the Word of God. So Jesus sees someone there who is sick. He heals the man. He, ha- he asks them if it's lawful, they won't answer. He then tells them, hey, if you have an animal who falls into a pit, you'll reach down and pull him up on a Sabbath day. But you, I, you know, obviously he knows that these people think it's wrong for what he just did. So he has this weird confrontation. They never speak. That's some bizarre thing about it. They never speak. They're just silent, right? They're just quiet. So, and the next thing you know, it's almost as if, <laughs> it's just so odd the way the narrative is written because they don't speak. And then immediately Jesus looks around, he sees all the people who've come to this dinner, and he he begins to say, and look at verse 7, and he put forth a parable to those which were bidden when he marked how they chose out the chief rooms, saying unto them. Jesus looks around, he notes that all these people who have shown up, they all want the chief seats, the place of honor, the place of position, the place of prestige. So immediately Jesus begins to tell a parable. And from verse uh, 8 to 11, Jesus begins to talk about where you should sit when you are invited to a wedding or to a dinner. And Jesus' emphasis here is when you are invited to a place, don't take which places? The high place, the position of honor, 
take the low place. And he, he uses a very like pragmatic approach. The pragmatic, the pragmatic reason is if you take the position of honor and someone else comes along who deserves that seat, you can be told to get up and walk to the back of the room and that can be embarrassing. So it's very pragmatic and you're kind of like, it's just like practical dinner etiquette 101 by Jesus. It just seems odd. But then we realize he's trying to make a deeper point. And again, I think he's going after whom? The Pharisees, that seems everyone there. And the main principle from this section is verse 11. Whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. So Jesus has kind of gone after, you've taken your own religious rules, exalted them over the word of God, and you care more about your own stuff than actual people who are suffering. And then he uses the places they sit to really go after the fact that in your heart, you're constantly doing what? exalting yourself as I am being humbled, all right? So we go from healing in the Sabbath. The second section of this uh, chapter deals with where to sit. And then the third section, because in verse 12, he then literally looks to the person who invited him. He literally looks to the person who invited him. And what does he do? Then look what Jesus said. When thou makest a dinner for or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and recompense be made thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. So Jesus goes from healing in the Sabbath to where to sit to who to invite. Who to invite? And he tells them, who do they should they invite? Not anyone who can pay you back. Not anyone who can do anything for you. Go, go invite whom? The poor, the lame, the crippled. Those who can't, those who would not typically get invited and those who can't do anything for you. All right? Once again, he's going after the Pharisees because they exalt themselves and what do they care about? themselves. So in other words, they could be like, look at me. I have great hospitality. Look at me. I'm godly. Well, no, you're really just, you're just inviting people who it's going to benefit you. He's really, he's, I, 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 again, I don't think there's any other way to interpret this, that every section he is literally going right after the Pharisees. He's going after their external actions and their internal motivations and, and if we compare it to Matthew 23, it seems like everything Jesus condemned them for in Matthew 23, he is condemning them for, for them for the same things here. It has to be an uncomfortable situation. Can you imagine sitting at this dinner and Jesus at every situation seems to be going after the very people who invited him? Right, right, exactly. Uh, yeah, the whole thing seems, to, I, well, and then the person who invited everyone is like, okay, so you go after where we sit, you go after who we invite, and you're really going after our religious rules. The whole thing has to be uncomfortable. And then the next verse is the most confounding, confusing. I have no clue what's going on in the next verse. I, I spent, what, I, last night, I think late last night, I think I spent almost an hour trying to work on it during the podcast. Um, verse 15. And when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. What? What is going on there? What, what is that? 
What is that? So it, I, there, there's a lot of speculation here, right? There, and to me, this is someone going, is anyone else feeling uncomfortable here? Like, is this, this is kind of, hey, we all agree, blessed is he who, who eats bread in the kingdom of God, right? Like, like he tries to find some spiritual way to, like, he's trying to distract from this very uncomfortable, from this great time of conviction. Some people believe this person demonstrates that they just don't get it. That what he looks at, because what's the last part of the verse before? You're going to be recompensed at the resurrection of the just, right? And so this person seems to look at it as, hey, we're, we're all going to, they don't, they're not getting the uh, rebukes. They're getting like, hey, blessed are us who's going to be eating bread in the kingdom. Like they don't see that this is a rebuke. Now, on one hand, I know this. I, I, again, I, I can use some examples of this. I, can, I use this example in the podcast. I remember, I don't remember how many years ago, Paul Washer's famous sermon, 10 Indictments Against the Modern Church. And everywhere I look, people talked about, this is the greatest sermon I have ever heard. Oh, every church needs to hear this. This is a great sermon. And for every person who told me it was a great sermon, I would just say, what church do you go to? And I would be like, he's condemning your church. Now, would they leave their church because they're condemning it? Absolutely not. Because all of those things that were being condemned, they really liked. Because I've watched that too many times. I want a church that does it this way until five minutes later, and then they go to a very church that does the very things that they said they didn't want. Because deep down, people want. So, and I, I know other times you can preach a sermon, and you're, and you're walking away thinking, man, everyone's going to be very convicted. And then you realize that no one sitting in the pew got it. And then you're kind of like, what did I, did I, was I not clear enough? Was I not, was, would I, I, I don't know what's going on, but this person takes these uncomfortable rebukes and he says, what? <laughs> Blessed is the one who's going to eat bread of the kingdom of God. I don't know if this person is clueless. I don't know if this is one of those people who doesn't like negativity. So just tries to say, hey, can't we all agree that blessed is the one who's going to be eating bread? Because you always have the one person who doesn't like the confrontation, the conviction. So they're just going to be like, hey, we all love Jesus, right? Okay, I, I don't know what's going on, but it's just bizarre, okay? Then... Starting after that, Jesus says to that person, <laughs> a certain man made a great supper and bade many, and he sent his servant, uh, and he sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, "Come, for all things are now ready." Well, he talks about someone, someone is going to have a supper. They sent his servant at supper time. Right? He starts inviting people, and then what happens? We have three examples of how people handle the invitation. They all start making what? Excuses. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground. I must needs go and see it. I pray thee have me excused. Another one said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to prove them. I pray thee have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. They all start making excuses. Now to me, Jesus seems to be going after whom again? I think he's going after the Pharisees. Hey, you, you think you're going to be eating bread in the, in the kingdom? You're the ones refusing the invitation. 
You're the ones who don't get it. Why will they not get it? Go back through the, the, the everything that we've talked about. The, the verses one through six, they're not going to accept the invitation because they've exalted their tradition and their religious belief over God's word. The second reason they want to come to the invitation is because they exalt themselves. They don't, they don't humble themselves. They don't see the need to come. Right? Does everyone see that? And the third, what would be the third reason? They only look for things that will benefit them, right? They, they once again put themselves, they, they don't care about anybody else. They're selfish. They're, they're self-seeking, right? They're, you're not going to come to an invitation when you're self-seeking because they would only come if they thought it was going to benefit them, Right? Okay, uh, and so the servant came and showed the Lord these things, and the master of the house began being angry, said to the servant, go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city, and note, please note, it's not identical, but it's pretty close. Who are they to invite? Look at verse 21. The hither, the poor, or come bring in hither the poor, the maimed, the halt, and the blind. Is that not very similar to what Jesus said earlier about who to invite? Now, the lectionary, I don't have time to get into this. The lectionary, interesting enough, guess what the epistle reading is for uh, almost all of this time in Luke uh, 14? It's Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11 is about whom being set aside. For whom to be brought in? The Gentiles. How would the Jews see the Gentiles? Poor, blind, blind. That, like it's brilliant. The, the lectionary, I, I, look, I don't know if it was intentional, but it's the most amazing thing when you put those two together. That he's telling the Jews, hey, you don't get it. You're not, you're missing, you make excuses. So go get the people who do get it because those people are humble. Those people are not exalting their religious religiosity over my word. Go bring them in. Okay, so this whole thing happens, and then verse 25, the dinner is over. Now, I don't know if the next section occurs immediately, like Jesus gets up from dinner and starts walking, and people follow him. I don't know if this happens at a later time. I think it happens at a later time because... Well, it's very similar to other situations where Jesus has said these exact same kind of words, but I don't know if this is just him repeating same words. We'd have to try to put it all together. But Oh, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. He's like, yeah, none of the people who were originally invited are going to be there, which seems to be answering the guy's question. Hey, you're not going to, don't think you're one of the blessed ones. Right, okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, so the whole, and then, and then we don't know how the dinner ended, but I, it had to be pretty cold. <laughs> so, it had to be some awkward silence there, okay? All right, so that's over. Now, yeah, 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 Jesus killed the conversation quickly. All right, now, we come to the next section. And the next section brings up one of the most controversial issues in the history of Christianity. Um, this divides Christianity absolutely into different groups. The problem is about the groups that disagree with how most people handle this are in the minority of the minority of the minority of the minority. People you know who go to church, people you are friends with who claim to be Christians, 
they, they are definitely going to hold a view 100% opposite to what I'm about to try to articulate, but I'm going to try to prove it, all right? So are you ready? Here we go. Verse 26. So for verse 25, there went a great multitude with him, and he turned and said unto them, so here's all these people, and he turns to all these people, and what does he say? If any man come to me and hate not his father, mother, wife, children, brethren, sisters, and his own life. Here is the key phrase. He cannot be my disciple. Our job in the next, I don't know, 35, 40 minutes is we're going to try to leave here and try to understand what is a disciple. That's what we're going to try to figure out. In this section, Jesus gives basically, I think, about three requirements that three things that will, if you don't do these three things, you cannot be his disciples. Meaning, these are three things that must be true of you if you want to be his disciple. Number one is what? You got to hate your family. Now, we, we, most everyone believes he doesn't mean you actually hate them, but what he means by them is hate there means you prefer someone else over them. Someone else is your priority. Something else is your priority. Something else is your purpose. Something else is your goal. So in comparison, it looks like hate because you're putting your preference somewhere else. That's typically how people understand this. They don't believe it's hate because Jesus tells you to even love your Enemies, so obviously, yeah, right, so, so they, this hate has to be understood. But the point is, unless you prefer something greater and prefer it more powerfully and consistently than you do your own family, you cannot be his disciple. Second thing, second requirement. Not only do you have to put something before family, what else does he go on to say? Look at that verse. You have to hate your own life. You have to put something before your own life. That means your purpose, your desire, your will, your hopes, your dreams, your expectations. And if you don't do that, you cannot be his disciple. What's the third requirement? Okay, well, there's, there's an argument here that could be made. The third argument, or the third requirement, well, okay, well, okay, I was going to go ahead and skip down. The third one, I I see, I was already skipping a verse. Okay, and whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be his disciple. So the third requirement is you you have to bear a cross. You have to bear a cross. Now, when we say bear a cross, how do we understand that? A cross is an instrument of death. Meaning, then, to bear your cross equals what? Dying to self. You have to completely die to self. So what three requirements do we have so far? Okay, you've got to put something, you've got to put God way before your family. Number two, you've got to put God way before yourself. Number three, you have to literally die to yourself. All right, is there a fourth requirement here? I'm breaking these down a little bit different than I did today in the podcast, but that's okay. I'm going to say uh, the fourth requirement, it's not explicit, but I think it's implied, starting in verse uh, 28. For which of you, uh, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost? I think the next thing you have to do is you've got to count the cost. 
You've got to count the cost. And Jesus says the reason you have to count the cost is you could end up looking really stupid. You could end up going, yes, I'm going to do this, and then you're going to find out that you can't or that you won't or that you, you're not going to do it for whatever reason. Right? There, and what's the fifth requirement? found in verse 33. Yeah. Whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. You have to forsake everything. All right. So we have five requirements. What are the five requirements? Number one, you got to put God before your family, completely. Pray. Number two, God before yourself. Number three, you've got to die to self. Number four, count the cost. Number five, forsake everything. All right, those are the requirements. Now, everyone can agree on those requirements. Trust me. There's many other requirements. In fact, we're going to go see how many other requirements we can find here in just a minute. But obviously, we, everyone understands the theological controversy this leads to. The theological controversy this leads to is that there is a good number of Christians based a lot on this book, The Gospel According to Jesus by John MacArthur, that equates... Discipleship or disciple with what? Okay. With salvation. Thank you. Okay. I was like, everybody should know what MacArthur says here. Okay. Yes. That to be a disciple is to be a Christian. To be saved. Now, as soon as you say that, immediately what should happen in every church when I read Luke 14... And I read those verses and I say, this is a call to salvation. What everyone in the pew should do is do what? (gasps) And a hand should be raised going, or at least you should just speak for yourself. (laughs) Right, but I know, I'm not saved. Now, I preached that message for year after year after year after year because I thought MacArthur, you know, I just thought MacArthur was preaching the gospel because I didn't know any different. Guess what? Did anyone ever feel that convicted that they weren't saved? No, including myself. But everyone should have because we convince ourselves what? That we're doing it. We're meeting it. And so what's always, what's always the workaround? Well, I mean, Jesus is not telling you you have to do it perfectly. That's garbage. What does the text say? You do this, you cannot be my disciple. He doesn't say I'm going to grade on a curve. And the minute is, if you say that you don't have to do it perfectly, then what's the obvious question? Then how imperfect can I do it and yet be saved? So the issue is, is being a disciple, being a Christian? Now, I will make an argument that I think the word disciple is used in a lot of different ways. I I think we can find this out. In fact, let's do a little test. Everyone look and see if you can find a verse where Judas is referenced as a disciple. Judas 
Just start looking. See what we can find. Let's just see what we can find. We're going to do a, lot of, a little bit of work here. See what you guys can find. See what you can find. We'll do a lot of work here tonight. We're going to do a lot of work on this because this is such a controversial thing in the American church. And as soon as you start talking about it, people get furious at you. But I, I don't know why it's so controversial, uh, but we have to come to some kind of a clarification here. John 12, 4, what does it say? All right, John 12, 4. Judas is referenced as a disciple in inspired scripture. All right, so that's John 12, 4. Now, we can probably find other references to it, but I want you to hear. Let me make sure everyone understands. You may want to write this down. Everybody ready? I think the word disciple can be used in a very vague way. Because the word disciple simply means what? Well, let's do that. Uh, well, let's look up uh, the very first reference in the New Testament where the word disciple is used. It'll be in Matthew. Find the first reference. We're going to do a little scope build. All right. What is the Greek word for disciple? And that's the first place it's used, Matthew 5.1? Okay. A learner, a pupil. Now, make it very clear. Someone can be a learner. Someone can be a pupil. So in other words, someone can be a learner of Christ, a pupil, learning, maybe even following after Christ. That doesn't even necessarily guarantee salvation, right? Just means that they're learning. They're curious. There's something that, right? It does. In other words, disciple can be used in a very vague way. A very vague way. The word disciple is used how many times? I don't even know how many times. It's over 200. Now, you know what we could do? We could look all 200 up to try to prove a point. Maybe at some point we'll have to. I want you to just see the word disciple can be used in a vague way that could reference whom? Saved or unsaved? Anyone who just seems to be a learner, pupil of Christ. In the most vague way, it could be. In fact, it can even reference someone who is Judas, okay, so it's a very vague term. Now, Jesus obviously is calling for something very different here in Luke 14, is he not? He's calling for something very different. Okay, so here's the question. So everyone pay close attention, everybody, everybody listening. Here we go. If a disciple, so just forget, let's just argue that the disciple clearly means a Christian, someone who's born again. If that's your argument, if that's your position, then what do you have to say? Based off Luke 14, then what has to be your theology about salvation? If a disciple is a believer, and that those requirements are what is, is a believer, then what do you have to believe about salvation? You, 
nobody wants to say this. I know MacArthur would deny this. You have to believe in a salvation by works. You have to. I mean, you're abandoning the, the false, you're, you're turning to a false gospel. And I, I know that, 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 that can offend some people, but there's just no way to get around it. But what, what's the game that's played? Well, yes, a Christian is a disciple, and these are the call to what Christianity is. You have to do this in order to be saved. They're, they play a little semantics game. And what's the semantics game everyone plays? You, well, this is the game they play. You don't do it in order to get saved. You do it because you're saved. But then what does that mean? You have to do it in order to be saved. Like, it's just a stupid game. MacArthur used to play that game all the time. I thought it was brilliant at, at one point. But clearly, you, when you think about it logically, you're just talking in circles. And thank goodness for Catholics, because Catholics are the one who demonstrated, you're just saying the same thing we are. Right? Yeah, well, what are you talking about? <laughs> hey, you do this because you're saved. And what happens if I don't do it? You're not saved. Meaning I have to. Do it in order to be, it's such a game, right? So that that means you just created a system that requires what? Works. Now, here's where it even becomes more complicated because Jesus speaks of it in a very black and white way, does he not? You do it or you're not my disciple. You do it or you're not my disciple. So how does MacArthur and those get around it? Well, you don't have to do it perfectly. Well, wait a minute. If I don't have to do it perfectly then you've really destroyed, why do I need to count the cost? What I need to do then is figure out what cost. How little can I do in order to still be saved? Because I at least still need to know the minimum, right? Can anyone give you a specific answer? No. So here's what we're going to do, just really quick, all right? Everyone grab whatever you want, electronic Bible, Bible dictionary, I don't care. Start looking everywhere and find me Five passages in the New Testament that gives us the requirements of a disciple. Whether Jesus says, you can't be my disciple if you do this, or you must do this in order to be my disciple. Let's find five passages that seems to articulate some kind of requirement for being a disciple or some disqualifier from being a disciple. And the quicker we can do this, the faster we can move on. I know that puts you on the spot, but you know, I love to do that. All right, whoever finds one first. Let's do this. We're going to look at the four Gospels, right? So, Sarah, you take Matthew. Stacy, you look Mark. Stephen, you go to Luke, right? And then we'll, we'll, we'll get back, we'll, we'll work together on John. All right, let's see what you can find. All right, who's got Matthew? All right, Sarah's got Matthew. Do you think that gives a requirement? Whoever finds the first one, raise their hand. I'm going to turn to Matthew. 
Okay. All right. Okay, all right, so we've looked at all the ones in Luke. You, you feel like there is no other ones in Luke, okay? All right? I definitely know where a bunch are in Matthew, but... I'll wait and see who comes up with one. So go ahead and start working on John then. Stephen, if you don't think there's any more in Luke, then go to John. Go to John, see what you can find. Yeah, I need help. Any scripture that would say, do this to be a disciple, or if you do this, you're not a disciple. Anything that would put forth some kind of a requirement of being a disciple. Okay. All right, so yeah, that would probably wouldn't fit too much, uh, probably wouldn't come close. Okay, yeah, now the only thing is, I, that's the passage I immediately thought of, but you'll notice something about the passage. It only, it, it's not super helpful for what reason? If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life shall lose it. Whosoever will lose his life for my sake will, will find it. Uh, what, what, what's missing in these verses? The word is not, the word disciple is not there, right? He's speaking to his disciples, but he says, if any man. So it's not super helpful, not very helpful. So I, we could use it to a, a, a degree, but it's not super helpful because we want something that says you cannot be my disciple or, or you're unworthy to be my disciple. Or... Okay, all right. Okay, that's what? John 15, 8, seemingly you must bear much fruit to be. His disciple. All right, you could, we can write that one down. Write down John 15, 8. All right, John 15, 8, that, that's at least something. Doesn't, isn't there some passage about they will know you're my disciples if you love one another or something along to those lines? Isn't that in John? Okay. Right, so we, we've got one. We, we need five. Or well, I, I thought we could get five without even trying since it's used like 220-something times. Right? Okay, you found none in John? Okay. Right. 
Nothing? We have none? Okay. Do we have anything that would be like a positive? Like if you do this, then you prove you're my disciple. Now, what we may demonstrate here, what we may demonstrate here is going to be a, a very important point, but it's just taking us an awkward silence to get there, but that's okay. Uh, Stephen, while they're looking, at, grab a Bible dictionary and look up and see if there is an uh, entry for the word disciple. And once you find it, give us the page number. I think we're, we're going we're gonna to find something that's going to be, but this is good. Okay, 356. All right, we'll look at it in a second here. Is everybody about to give up? You cannot. Okay. Okay, so, now, why this, now, look, I, I, I think we could possibly find some things, but I just want you to see, at least in this very brief look, this should start making you go, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I can't find some clear, definitive definitions, then how come MacArthur and others can be so dogmatically assert a disciple is a Christian, and you have to do this in order to be saved or to prove you're saved? If we just looked in, all we have is a Luke passage, right? Should that make you at least a little bit skeptical of such dogmatic claims? Yes, no? Possibly? I'm going to see really quick here. Um, I'm going to go here. I think I have the page number here, right? Are you ready? Page 219 from the Gospel According to Jesus. Everybody ready? Guess what this chapter is called? The Cost of Discipleship, right? How do you know this? Okay, okay. I'm like, are you looking at the book over there? Okay, or you got the chapters memorized? I'm like, if you've got the chapters chapters memorized, I'm like, how come you never answer any questions about it? Okay, all right, here we go. All right, I Here we go. In previous chapters, we have touched on Jesus' call to discipleship. Here, we will examine it more clo- closely. Let me say again, unequivocally, that Jesus' summons to deny self and follow Him was an invitation to salvation, not an offer of a higher life or a second step of faith following salvation. The contemporary teaching that separates discipleship from salvation springs from ideas that are foreign to Scripture. There you have it. Unequivocally. 
When Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. When Jesus gives, that's an, now MacArthur calls it, that's an invitation to salvation. That's Jesus inviting you to salvation. Jesus inviting you to salvation is this. This is MacArthur's understanding of being invited to salvation. Are you willing to hate your mother, your father, your children, and your own life? Are you willing to forsake everything you have? If you're not, get out. No salvation for you. If that's not straight up law, I don't know what is. But the minute you can... The minute you raise your voice in opposition to that, guess what? You immediately become an antinomian. I have no idea how disagreeing with that makes someone an antinomian. That right there should scare anyone to death because that sounds straight like Roman Catholicism is what that sounds. And what does he completely condemn? That you cannot separate what two concepts? Salvation and discipleship. And that all, so therefore, according to MacArthur, Matthew 16, everyone look at Matthew 16, 18. Now the word disciple is not there. Sarah pointed this out, but they would, this would be connected to discipleship. Matthew 16, uh, I said 18, I'm sorry, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. There you have have it. Now Jesus, MacArthur would say that that's what? That's the call to salvation. Now, how does does MacArthur get around saying that you have to do that in order to be saved? What's his workaround? You just have to be willing to do it. But then, guess what happens? You first have to say you're willing to do it, and then six months later, MacArthur can say what to you? You were never saved because you're not doing it. Therefore, you have to do it in order to be saved. That, that is not the gospel. If that's the gospel, I, I'm just going to say this as dogmatically as I can. If I come to the conclusion that what MacArthur is preaching there is the gospel, goodbye, I'm going to, I'm going to Sacred Heart Catholic Church uh, next Sunday because there's no point sticking around in the Protestant world when that just clearly proves that, that the whole gospel of salvation alone through faith alone because of Christ alone because of an imputed righteousness was fraudulent and we should have never left the Catholic Church because that is, that's crazy. So he goes on to say, you ready? Every Christian is a disciple. In fact, the Lord's great commission was to go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. That means the mission of the church and the goal of evangelism is to make disciples. Now, I will argue. Everyone look at Matthew 28. Everyone look at Matthew 28. This is not giving us the five requirements for a disciple, but that's okay. That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. I still wanted to find five verses that gave us some some things. But this, this immediately begins to show that this entire argument about discipleship is based off what? Not a lot of information, right? Okay, so look at the Great Commission. What do you see? First, where does the word disciple show up in the, the Great Commission?
Now, it really depends on which translation, right? Okay, it says go and make disciples. All right, so now we have translation issue. We have a translation issue, all right? So let's say, it say, let's say that it does say go make disciples. We're not going to get into a textual argument here. Let's just argue that the Great Commission says go and make disciples. Right? Right. So when you go teach someone, in a sense you make them a disciple because they're learning. That doesn't, that's, that's a million miles from doing what? That's a million miles from, like, in, in, in a roundabout way, I'm teaching you, you're listening to me. So I can make an argument that you are my disciples. Because John the Baptist, did he not have disciples? Yes. Why? Because the term is used in a generic way. MacArthur is making an argument that because the Great Commission say go make disciples, then this means then everyone, that then salvation is getting people to do what? Die to self tonight. That is a, that is a jump in logic that the text does not demand. I go and make disciples because you go and teach. Those who listen to your teaching are going to be learners. Therefore, in the most generic way possible, they are disciples. But listen, we can even go a step further, right? Go make disciples. Now, think about it. First, you go evangelize, then you baptize, then you teach them to obey, right? Now, isn't the goal of Christianity, I'm going to put forth an argument that a Christian and a disciple are two separate things. Wouldn't the goal is to move all believers to some level of discipleship? That would be the goal, right? Now, I will argue no one ever, under any circumstances, has ever come close to meeting the requirements of discipleship that Jesus put forth in Luke 14. No one ever has. That may be the goal, but no one ever has. So I will argue that we, we, don't have, we don't have a lot of information about what being a disciple. He's just making an argument that the Great Commission is, is trying to get us to where, to what Jesus is calling for. He says, disciples are people who believe, though, disciples are people who believe those whose faith motivates them to obey all that Jesus commanded. Please note, what is a disciple? Someone who's motivated to obey everything Jesus commanded. Have you ever seen one Christian who's ever pulled that off? It's easy to say, I'm motivated to obey everything he's commanded. Has anyone done it? And let me tell you, MacArthur hasn't done it. He goes on to say, the word disciple is used constantly as a synonym for believers throughout the book of Acts. Now, can it be used as a synonym for believers? Yes, in what way? How can it be a synonym for believers? How can the word disciple be a synonym for believers? It's all, we're learners, right? We're pupils of Christ. That, that, that's still a million miles from what? Well, no, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's not, it doesn't even mean salvation, but I'm saying if we make a disciple a synonym for a believer, we, I, I got to make sure everyone's with me here, right? If, if, Disciple is a synonym for a believer that is a million miles from what Jesus is calling for in Luke 14. Can everyone agree with that? That I can be a disciple because I'm simply a a believer, a learner. 
a follower to some level. That's a million miles from what Jesus called in Luke 14, and that's a million miles from what Jesus called in Matthew 16. And I will argue there's some other scriptures y'all didn't find, but I think we can find some other scriptures that would go similar language. But I'm telling you that that's a million miles. So let's make this very clear. I, I, I could go through all of MacArthur's arguments here. Let's make this very clear. Everybody ready? All right, so let's try to break this down, right? Here are our possible ideas here, all right? I wanted to find more scriptures, but that's okay. All right, everybody, everybody, I did this today on the podcast, so let me do it here, all right? Here are our options. You ready? Option number one, a disciple, as Luke 14 calls for, that kind of discipleship, is the same thing as salvation. Therefore, salvation is a call that you must die to self, deny self, forsake everything. You must do that in order to be saved. All right? Everybody listening to this one? All right? So this one makes an argument that it is that requirement. But the solution to that requirement is the law-gospel distinction, which would, which would say what? That is the requirement. Can I meet the requirement? No, I can't do it. So I should, I should be broken and humbled going, Lord, I'm never going to forsake everything. I'm never going to hate my own life. I'm never going to probably put you first. I'm never going to do this. But Jesus did all of those things, right? So therefore, in Christ... I have done it, therefore, your, MacArthur is right that it, it's a call, it's like this call of discipleship is a call to salvation, but I can, it's only met in Christ Jesus. That is solution number one. That's the law gospel solution. They keep the, the two concepts together. I don't even think you can prove that the two concepts belong together because at its very base, the word disciple can mean anything. It's, it's a very generic term. So I don't think you can immediately say that implies to salvation, all right? Does everyone understand that? But let's go with the first one. So what's the first idea? Disciple, as Jesus calls for in Luke 14, is synonymous with being a Christian. Therefore, to be a Christian, you must meet the requirements of Luke 14. and, And therefore, we are to interpret that passage as being what kind of a passage? Law. And when we read it, we should do what? Woe is me, I can't, but in Christ, he did, so I did, so therefore I am a disciple in Christ. And that's only referring to my positional reality. Practically, do I do all of those things, Luke 14? No, I don't. That's, that's solution number one, right? What is solution number two? What do you think solution number two is? Okay, well, we'll put that as three, okay? Solution number two is that Christian and disciple are two different things. And the Luke 14 concept, right? In a generic way, yes, it's the same. But Jesus is calling for, in Luke 14, and maybe some of these other passages, he is calling for a level of commitment, a level of focus that is called discipleship that is different than just salvation. So in other words, someone can be saved, but never make this form of discipleship even a a priority in their life. But they still are saved. Because what are we saved by? Grace alone through faith alone because of Christ alone because of an imputed righteousness. But Christ calls for a way of life that very few ever pursue. 
I'll give you an, I'll give you an example. In Luke 14, what was the last requirement Jesus gave in Luke 14 uh, that we talked about earlier? What's that last requirement that he gave in Luke 14? Forsake everything that you have. What does that mean? I listened to a message today. You know what they told me that means? That to forsake everything just means I relinquish ownership to it. Like, Lord, none of the the things I own belong to me. They belong to you, and I'm going to be a good steward of it. Do you know how utterly ridiculous that sounds? I relinquish everything by just saying I don't have ownership to it, but guess what? I get to own it, purchase it, use it, enjoy it, love it, but somehow I've relinquished it. No, if you're going to go with that, that means to do what? You forsake everything. This is exactly why those kinds of passages are exactly why so many people in the early church did what? Become monasteries. Join monasteries. They created monasteries and joined monasteries. Because they're like, how else am I supposed to do that? They didn't know what else to do. And now we sit back and, and people in Protestant churches who listen, who love MacArthur, will mock the monk in a Catholic church. It's like, how dumb, how foolish. What are you talking about how dumb and how foolish? You're telling me I have to do this in order to be saved. So I will argue that, that to me, drawing a distinction between salvation and this kind of discipleship makes sense because I can say what? I'm saved by grace alone through faith alone because of Christ alone, but Christ calls for a life, a, a life of a disciple that, I'm supposed to pursue, but I don't know if I've ever been in church with anyone who ever has. Does, that, does Luke 14 sound like you guys? But, but everyone will walk around claiming that, it, 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 that it's the way to salvation. It's just ridiculous, all right? Those are two options. What's the third option? That this is a call to salvation? If you don't do it, you're not his disciple, therefore you're not saved. Now, you can play the little semantics game. You don't have to do it in order to get saved, but you've got to do it to prove that you're saved. But if you even are remotely honest with it, then what conclusion should you come to? Nobody is saved. But the minute you try to challenge someone who believes that, they will call you an antinomian. And I'm baffled by how they think antinomian fits that. That's where someone should not learn theological terms until they've actually read a book on the subject. Because that, that's not an antinomian, ladies and gentlemen. That's not an antinomian. To question this is not, what am I doing? You're not questioning the law. What are you questioning? You're questioning that you've created a gospel that I'm sorry to say is a false gospel. And guess what false gospels do? They condemn. So if you're going to accuse me of an ant being an antinomian, I'll accuse you of having a false gospel, meaning you're not saved. Oh, but nobody wants to go there, right? So it's in it amazing that people can run around with this gospel and they're supposedly all, all oh, they're good Christians. But guess what? Does MacArthur believe everyone who rejects his view of lordship salvation holds to a true gospel? He believes that's a false gospel. So then who has the true gospel?
So let's, well, yeah, but nobody knows what that means, okay? Which makes a good Catholic argument, right? It makes a good Catholic argument is that Protestants think the scriptures are the authority, but nobody can figure it out, okay? But so let's, well, it's already eight o'clock. We ran out of time. All right, now let's go through this. Everybody ready? We'll just summarize this to the best of my ability. I hate that I'm out of time because we took a long time trying to find five verses. I thought we could find more, but I'm good. I'm glad that we didn't because it proves a point. All right, so here we go. Everybody ready? All right. And Luke 14, Jesus gives how many requirements to be a disciple? Whatever a disciple is. Five. And those requirements are number one, hate your family or, or you've got to prefer something above your family, which is Christ, which is God. Number two, You got to prefer God and Christ over your own life. Number three, you got to die to self. Number four, count the cost. Number five, forsake everything. Now, immediately when you see those five requirements, you should be like, oh, what do I do with that? Right? So then we're left with, What's the big question when seeing those five requirements? What is a disciple? So is a disciple. And what we can see is the term disciple can be used in a very vague way or it can be used in Jesus calling for something very specific, right? Very specific. And that very specific discipleship that Jesus is calling for leaves us with only three ways of interpreting it. Way number one, is that it is a call to salvation, as MacArthur said. It is an invitation to salvation. I must do those things in order to be saved, or I must do them to prove that I'm saved, meaning I have to do them in order to, to be saved. Now, if we, if we say that that's true, there is one way to answer it that at least protects the gospel, is that therefore it is a law-based command. I immediately am confronted with the fact that I cannot, will not, will never accomplish it, Therefore, I look to Christ who kept all of those requirements because he was a true disciple, right? He placed God before his own mother, right? He, put, he did everything. I'm about, why are you looking for me? I'm about my father's will. God was his true father, right? Uh, you know, when he told Mary, what, what, what are you talking to me for, right? It, it's not my time. Like there was plenty of times where he seemed to put whom first? God. So if Jesus did all of those things, then I believe in Christ and all of his obedience to the demands for discipleship are met in him. Therefore, I can say, you're right, MacArthur. It's a call to discipleship and in Christ, I meet that requirement. Problem solved. All right. That's, that's solution number one. Solution number two, two separate things, two separate things, two separate things that I'm saved, but there is a call to discipleship that we are to heed, even though we don't do a very good job at it. Number three, yeah, that this is a call to salvation, and and, and my call to salvation is a call to put God before family, put, put before self, to take up my cross and die, to count the cost, and to forsake everything. And then I think, because the language is so similar, I think we can put Matthew 16 there. Don't you believe? I know it doesn't use the word disciple, but I think Matthew 16 comes along to fit that. It's a very similar language, is it not? 
I, I, think, I think it is. I think it is. And I think Jesus is, I think there's some other passages where it talks about counting the cost and doing some of the, these other passages are repeated. I think the problem is the word disciple is not used. And I think there, but, the, but oh, so, so those are our options. Where are almost 90% of the Christians you know who go to church, which option do they go with? A requirement for salvation. And they believe that they do it. That is the most insane thing. Like that, that you know, sometimes atheists say religion is a mental health crisis. Like that you've got to have a mental health problem to start believing you're doing that stuff. You really do, man. You've got to be living in a land. I don't know what drugs you're taking. Something is wrong, all right? Now, but what can we take from that? We, we ran out of time. So for those listening who listened earlier today, here's what I would challenge us to do. Um, really what we need to do is we need to look up every use of the word disciple. And what would we be looking for? Do we, do we get, because I think, but here's what I think we're going to find is that it has, it's a wide range of usage. That's what I think we're going to find. I, don't, I mean, we already saw it, right? I mean, we, does the Bible dictionary say that? It can be specific or general. The Bible dictionary says that. In fact, I'll just, I think I've got it open. Where did I put it? I'll just read it really quick. A disciple, a student, learner, or a pupil. In the Bible, the word is used most often to refer to a follower of Jesus. The word is rarely used in the Old Testament. Isaiah used the term disciples to refer to those who taught or instructed. The word disciple is sometimes used in a more specific way to indicate the 12 apostles of Jesus, which would include whom? Judas, meaning it can even be used to refer to an unbeliever, right? In general, apostles, uh, in general, Apostles refers to a smaller inner group of Jesus' followers. Disciples refer to a larger group of Jesus' followers, such as the woman who stood at, the, at Jesus' cross and discovered the empty tomb. That, that don't really give us much there. It can be specific. It can be general. I mean, the term just means pupil, learner. It literally can be anyone. And, and somehow within Christianity, we've taken this and turned this into the hill to die on. I mean, MacArthur literally, dead, I mean, he, he goes after anyone who's quote unquote a part of the easy believism world or free grace world because he's like, nope, this is a requirement for salvation. It's a requirement. And when you just look at that requirement, I don't know who would, who, who thinks they're saved? I think if you look up all 200, I think, is it 200, Sarah? About 250. I think you're going to find it used in the most general way possible. Most of the time. It can refer to the 12 disciples. It can refer to anyone who's following after Jesus. It, uh, it could, learning. It could be, it could be just, and it seems to have sometimes, Jesus makes it a very, 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 very specific. I, out of those three options, I'll just end with this. Which, which one do y'all lean towards out of those three options? Okay, not the third one. Okay. All right, and I, and I do mean this, and I, and I, and I don't think people think I, I'm just being hyperbolic, but I mean it. If I ever come back to the conclusion that the third one is right, I'm just going to become a Catholic. What's the point? 
Because not only could I go back to basically, I mean, if I'm going to go to that point, I'm already believing more of a gospel, a Catholic gospel anyway. And so again, guess what? I not only could I get the Catholic gospel back, I, I could also be done with what? I could be done with all of the chaos with everyone thinking that they're right and everyone thinks their, their interpretation right. Remember the strongest, I think Sarah will agree with this, the strongest enticement to Catholicism is that right there. There's like, no, 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 no. Not all of you can interpret it. The church can, the magisterial authority. That, I mean, I mean, whew, I'd just be, I'd be I'd, I would be relieved. I'd just be like, I'm done fighting about ever. I don't have to fight about anything. You're like, argue with me. Just talk to the magisterium. Leave me alone. I don't have time to deal with you. Because it wouldn't matter if I argued with you. Anyway, right? So, um, but I'm telling you, if I, if I bought into the third one, I'm going to, to Catholicism. Then I get the liturgy. I get the history. That, that sounds enticing to me, all right? The other two, out of the fir- first two, which one do you lean more, t- more towards? Just based off our very fast study tonight. Oh, y'all like two? Y'all don't like my long gospel idea? Oh, wow, okay. Y'all, y'all definitely don't like Lutherans, I guess. Okay, all right, all right. Okay, all right. So, so, so there's kind of a split there. Why, why, do y'all, why do y'all favor two? What is it about two that you favor? Okay. Do you have, do you, is there a part of you that favors two because it still makes the call to discipleship something we are to pursue? Is that why you long for number two or like number two? Because number two would be like, hey, there's a difference between a Christian and, and this kind of disciple, and, but you are called to it. Number one seems to just say it's already been met in Christ. Whether you're called to it or not, I'm already a disciple, at least positionally. It may still be the call there, but it's not going to be emphasized. Where in the second one, the emphasis would be, well, you're saved, but my job is to try to get you from salvation to discipleship so that you're pursuing a life where you're dying to self, denying self. So I think some people like to, because they still feel that the, the, the call is there to get people there. Where they, the one, they, they feel like, oh, that's too, that's, that's too easy, right? Because everybody likes that requirement to be there. Even though everyone says they like the requirement, but no one actually ever goes after it. But, okay, make it both, okay. <laughs> we are a disciple, yeah. Okay, all right, gotcha. Did you have something back there? I don't know. You're looking for something, so I didn't know if you had something. Oh, okay. I think two makes people feel a little bit better because it feels like there's still a call for it. I think one, but I do agree that what, I think one and two can work together to some level because I got to have some way to meet that requirement, right? I mean, Luke 14 I can't just say it doesn't mean anything. So the only way I can find the way I can meet that requirement is in Christ. So I got to have the first one. I got to have the first one to meet the requirement, right? Because I'm never going to meet it. Matthew 16, I'm never going to meet that one. Deny self, take up the cross, follow me. Do we follow Christ? Not in anywhere close, right? And And I think that, can can someone, am am I wrong? Is there not a verse that says, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another? Okay, where is that verse? Because nobody found it. What verse is that? Okay, someone find it really fast where we can at least end with that. 
It's got to be there. Okay, do what? It's in a song. Okay, all right. Okay, probably true. Let's see if we can find because I can't believe we missed that one. I figured that would be like one of the second or third ones someone would find. But am I? Are we misquoting the verse? Like, do I? How did we miss that? How did we miss that? All right, I'm going to end with that. John 13, 35. Yeah, I don't know how we missed that. There was some kind of, it was a satanic plot for us not to find scripture. Okay, I don't know what happened. I I figured that would be one that someone would, I I, I was starting, look, I started questioning myself when y'all didn't find it. I was like, man, I'm, I'm making things up here. Yeah, but this shall all men know that you have my, uh, that you are my disciples who love one another. That's a requirement for a discipleship, then, right? Okay. Well, you got to love one another. Come on, man. I've been a Christian for too long. Oh, we left off the S. Okay. Well, I wonder if we find more that way. We're already out of time, but I, but maybe maybe we could. So we at least found one requirement out of the five. Okay, I needed five. We found it one. All right, good. Wait, there was another one that someone found. What was the other one? What, what was the one that you found in John? John 15, 8, which is? John 15, 8, which is? You bear much fruit. you my disciple. All right, so we have to love so now we got two. You got to love one another and you got to bear much fruit. All right. Now, now we're even making it more complicated because I'm telling you, when you get to Christians loving one another, man, we gossip, slander, stab in the back. There's not a lot of love. Oh, there's a lot of external pretending of love. Not when it really comes down to push comes to shove sometimes. All right. So there's two. There was, there's two. So we only need three more. Okay. Well, we don't have time to do it now. All right. All right. But we're getting close. I just want to increase the number of, of expectations or rules to be a disciple because at some point you want people to crumble under the weight of it and go, this is not working. That's what I was trying to, to get to, if that makes sense. All right. I knew there was more. I knew there was more. I was like, I'm like, I was starting to lose my mind. I was starting to think, man, I know my... My head's hurting, but I'm like, I know there has to be some more verses about disciples in there. I know there has to be. All right. Okay. Any other, any questions? Are we good? Oh, there's the third one, John 8, 31. Okay. If you continue in my word, you're my disciple. So you got to continue in his word. You got to love one another and you got to bear much fruit. Is anyone starting to give up? All right. Now we got three. We only need two more. Okay. We're so close. All right. All right. All right. So, all right. We'll stop there. I knew I something when I'm like, sometimes when I try these exercises, things can go horribly wrong. I'm like, this went horribly wrong. Someone's got to find it. All right. Yeah, but you're right. We put disciple in and everybody was like, uh. and the problem is you put in disciple, it's used like 200 times. So you've got all these verses and you're trying to go through it as fast as you can. Right. 
Right, but he didn't say, if you're not my disciple, right? It was kind of, uh, it, uh, it was helpful. And does he not say, does he say something like, if, uh, if you put your hand to the plow and look back, you're not, you're not worthy to be my disciple? Or you're not fit for the kingdom of God? How does it state it? If anyone puts their hand to the plow and look back, I don't know if he says, you're, you can't be my disciple. I think he says, not fit for the kingdom. But that would add another requirement to it. It's not, even though it doesn't use the word disciple. Is it Luke 9? I thought it was Luke. We're never going to, ah, not fit for the kingdom. Okay. I thought it was possibly a disciple. That, all right. I, thought, I was like, we're going to find four before we're done. Okay. All right. We'll have to stop. All right. Much to think about. Again, I would recommend if anyone wants to hear MacArthur's position, uh, the gospel according to Jesus, chapter 22. And then you can look at everything he says about disciples. Right, because we want, I want people to know where to hear the contrary perspective. Right? I want everyone to hear MacArthur's perspective. Just whenever you take MacArthur's perspective, take it to its logical conclusion, and then you can, t- uh, you can just declare yourself not saved, and then you'll just save yourself a lot of time. Because if you read MacArthur's understanding, then there's nobody saved. All right, so let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, this is so frustrating that 2,000 years later, and we still, within Christianity, can't even agree on the word disciple. You think at some point, Lord, we could agree on something, but we still can't agree. And it either is because of our own selfishness, our own pride, our own ego, our own unwillingness to read your word. I Sometimes, Lord, I don't understand what our problem is. Forgive us for all the times we mishandle it. I do believe your word is truth. Just... Keep us studying and pursuing so that we can find it. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...